Good morning, everybody. Good morning. <clears throat> I just came back from a um, <clears throat> a time a trip to Washington D.C. I trust you see things are much better by now. I've, I haven't looked at the news, but did we get things straightened out? Apparently not. The silence is deafening. No, they were meeting with the Gospel Coalition and then had a little little vacation, and then I was at a little golf tournament in uh, Augusta that starts officially today, if it doesn't rain out. And you know, they have a whole corner of that golf course named after your Bible study. Amen. Amen corner. Today is, uh, our study is in Psalm 95, the characteristic of a godly man being one who worships. We talk about, <clears throat> we're accustomed to referring to worship leaders, but I want to talk about how to, how to be a lead worshiper. That leading involves being a true leader in any situation, in any situation, no matter what your age is, no matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, whether you have a family or not, whatever your business, your primary responsibility as one who is made in the image of God is to be a lead worshiper. We say in our catechism, the very first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is a human being's, what is a man's primary purpose? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is worship, glorifying and enjoying Him. This psalm that we're studying this morning, Psalm 95, <clears throat> has been historically referred to as the Winite, the Winite psalm. That's the first word in Latin. Come, come. It's a command. Come. This is the come psalm. The old church would say, let's turn to the come psalm because it begins with this command. And I want to remind you that this was the Old Testament hymn book. This was the this largest book in the Bible, right in the middle, is the book that people would carry with them uh, to church when there were books. And then earlier than that, they were, they were on scrolls and the family and people would memorize them. And this is what they would sing in worship. Everyone knew these psalms by heart. These were the songs of the church, every one of them. The sad ones, the tragic ones, the complaining ones, as well as the rejoicing ones. And so when this was sung, it wasn't the pastor saying, come, let us worship. It wasn't some official. This was the whole congregation saying to each other, come, let us worship. So, this is a, a command for us to come, and it is a command that we are to issue to everyone around us by our lives. Come, follow me, let us worship together. Let's read it and see what else the Lord has to teach us <clears throat> in this famous psalm. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. 
and his hand, in his hand, are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest." Let's pray briefly one more time. <clears throat> oh, Lord, would you open our eyes to see the beauty of your character? And would you move us to be lead worshipers, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week, in every situation? Help us to step forward, to stand up, as men of God, and lead people to worship our gracious God and Savior, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, God's men said, amen. In the last couple of years, I've seen two very dramatic differences in the impact that a man can have on those around him in worship. Uh, not too many months ago, I was in a church that I once pastored, and I looked up in the, in the balcony and saw a sight that I had become too accustomed to, but it was even worse than I remembered. It was three generations of families sitting in the balcony where they had sat for many decades. All of them would profess to be Christians. I would count uh, a number of them as my friends. Uh, esteemed people in the community. One uh, very distinguished uh, warrior on the battlefield. Uh, another a leader in the community. Uh, but uh, for various reasons, when uh, they would, when any the, when there was uh, music, when there was uh, congregational singing, they would all stand, and they would put their hands like this, and they would glare. Now, uh, for one or two, it may have been uh, that that was their uh, tradition as warriors, as military people. But in reality, it was a, uh, mostly a protest against the style of music. The style of music was various. It wasn't one particular style of music, but uh, that was ostensibly uh, the, the reason they glared. First generation, he had gotten mad a long time ago, so he glared. Second generation, looking at the first generation, glared. And now what was most tragic of all was the little boys down to kindergarten age doing exactly the same thing. 
not very inspiring. I couldn't really look at it as a pastor. It was so heartbreaking, so annoying, so tragic. A very different picture. One of our members here at uh, Second, uh, uh, let's say advanced in age, still very active in music ministry, uh, of an age that uh, knew uh, segregation and, and, uh, and those tragedies of the past. But we had a jubilee service here soon after I arrived here, a service in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's death and led by Rufus Smith or coordinated by our Memphis Christian Pastors Network and the emphasis was on unity and diversity, not going back and rehashing um, uh, past tragedies, though we remembered them and lamented them, but pointing forward, what difference will the gospel make in our unity and in healing our city? And uh, this uh, senior saint, leader in our uh, music ministry, uh, for whatever reason, was I mean, he was in the choir and participating with all the choirs, the combined choirs, and for whatever reason, the, the, the camera got stuck on him. It was a big, you know, kind of a big screen so that everybody in the room could see. And the camera got stuck just on him. And uh, he dressed cooperatively like uh, the others, the black shirt and so forth. And, and then uh, they were singing some traditional hymns. And then they sang hymns that were more traditional to the African-American church that we were in Mississippi Boulevard. And it involved some clapping and swaying. And that camera stuck on him, showed him doing everything that everybody else was doing, except maybe a little out of rhythm and maybe swaying this way when everybody else was swaying that way. And it was inspiring. To this day, when people talk to me, meet, I spoke at that for a brief time. People mentioned that they met me for the first time at that Jubilee service. The next thing they mention is, and I remember that man from your choir right there in the middle of the camera. It was so inspiring to the whole rest of the room. He loved the Lord and he was loving us. And I couldn't help but worship in the same way. It's a great difference, isn't it? Which one do you want to be? We want to be. You wouldn't be at Amen Bible Study if you didn't want to do things a little differently. We want to be lead worshipers. We want to lead the people around us, people in our families, the people of successive generations. We want to lead them to worship the Lord Jesus Christ because He is good. And there is good news. There is no reason ever to withdraw from worshiping and participating with the people of God in worship. No reason because of these three things that are outlined in our text. These things uh, that uh, call us to imitate the character of God. Joy, 
thanksgiving and obedience. Yes, we're called to rejoice. Yes, we're called to be thankful. Yes, we're called to obey. But as usual in the Bible, we're never called to do anything except we are given a reason, a redemptive reason for doing it. The first one we find is in verses 1 to 2. To be lead worshipers means that we come into the presence of God joyfully, that we convey joy. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Now, we have to make sure that we read Scripture as Scripture and not through the lens of our cultural bias. And our cultural bias tells us that we, our present cultural bias tells us that we must not do anything that we are not inspired to do. You know, wait till you feel it. That's not the biblical picture. The psalmist doesn't say, come, let us sing, if you feel like it. If you feel like it today, would you please come? And if you feel happy, if you feel joyful, if you have a reason, a circumstance that makes you feel joyful, you should express that to the Lord. No, this is the Lord saying, I don't care how you feel. I mean, I care. But there's no excuse for not doing what I'm about to tell you to do. I want you to make a joyful noise. I don't feel joyful. Did I say that you have to feel joyful before you make a joyful noise? I'm telling you, make a joyful noise. The Bible treats us that way. The Bible takes us by the nape of the neck and causes us to do what it knows not only we must do, but will cause us to flourish. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. All excuses are removed for not rejoicing. Rejoice. I'm telling you, here's a command. Rejoice in the Lord. Well, what if I don't feel like it? Always. Did you not hear what I said? Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And we do it because God rejoices over us. Here's the reason we are not allowed to withdraw from rejoicing. God is the first joy maker. God leads in joy. Let me remind you of several things from Scripture. In Job 38, verse 9, God says, or the Bible says, that when God created the world, the angels rejoiced. Now, here's what angels do. Angels do whatever they see God doing. So the angels are rejoicing in Job 38 because God is so happy. God is so joyful when He was making the world. He was happy they responded. You see a similar thing, you know, in Luke chapter 15, when it talks about the prodigal son, the lost, the recovery of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost child. And he says, I tell you, there is more rejoicing over one lost soul that is brought back than over the 99 who are with it. Why is there more rejoicing in heaven? Because God is rejoicing. God is happy. God is the, is, the pers- is, the, is the father in the prodigal son story who throws a party and rejoices when his son comes home. God rejoices over you. Every time you repent, God rejoices. 
And the Bible says in Zephaniah 3.17, God rejoices over us with singing. God sings over us. Let me show you one other passage from, from the Bible, you can, uh, from, uh, from the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2, if you can find that quickly. If not, just uh, write it down. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, I tell you, uh, I will tell of your name to my brothers. This is Jesus speaking. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So do you realize that every time we meet for worship, Jesus is with us singing? Jesus is singing in our midst. So we respond in joy when God tells us to rejoice. God is telling us, follow my example. I want you to hear me singing, rejoicing in the creation. I want you to open your eyes of faith and hear me singing over you when you turn to me in repentance. I want you to hear me singing over you in love. And when you hear me, when you, when you understand that I am rejoicing, I want you to follow my example. And when you follow my example, others will follow your example. Well, how do we... How do we express joy in worship, daily worship, but especially in worship on the Lord's Day? He tells us uh, four things here. He says, uh, you sing, you make music, you shout, and you kneel. What is that? Let's just make a few comments on those things. Singing. Singing is also a command. You see, when those people, when uh, those friends of mine crossed their arms and made their bodies rigid and kept their mouths closed. They were disobeying God. It's not an option of whether you want to sing or not. There's never a condition on it whether you're a good singer or not. The command is to sing. Because singing is the language of love, as Derek Kidner says. We sing, we make a joyful noise because that's what we were made to do. You may not be as gifted at it as other people, but uh, warriors and happy people have always sung. Historically, men have sung as they were going into battle. And uh, people sing when they're happy. People sing when they're in love. And so there is something transformative in it, in us, and I could quote the studies. I've done some research on this topic of the, of the, that's, imp- it's happening. The Lord is coming. Um, right on, King Jesus. Uh, we'll enjoy it a little bit, Rob, till you find out how to turn it off. But singing, look how we, look at the, how that music made us laugh. Can't stay sad with that kind of music. And we sing. Sing Singing is transformative. Singing increases those chemicals in our brain that make us happy. A number of studies like that. There's singing music therapy in uh, hospital settings, especially in, in, uh, in geriatric settings. 
It's impossible to stay depressed. It's impossible to stay bitter. It's impossible to stay hopeless when you sing. So, it doesn't matter if you have to get off somewhere else, if you have to get off to yourself, lock yourself in your car, sing. And when you come to worship, sing. My dad was not, I'm thinking a lot about my dad lately because he just had a stroke and he's winding down, he's not doing well, so I've been thinking a lot about the many ways my dad was a great example to me. And one of the ways was uh, he, he, he sang in worship. He had a terrible voice. He couldn't sing. He was never trained. His mother was quite a musician, but, but uh, he always opened the hymn book and he sang. So there was never a time in my life when I was ever taught real men don't sing because I always saw my dad Sing. I didn't know why. I had to grow into why we sing. But the simplest thing you can do, you say, I'm not a great theologian. I can't lead devotions. I'm not, uh, I'm not a great, uh, a great uh, scholar. I don't know a lot about the Bible to lead my family. Here's one thing you can do to impact your family. When you get to the worship service and as often as you can in between, sing the Lord's praises. Um, Secondly, he says, make music. Make music. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Uh, We have uh, Psalm 150, make music with every kind of instrument. Some guidance for music in worship services, uh, and it's just a little. The words must be true. The words must be true. The music should support the words. Instrumentation should celebrate. And there should be strong hymns and there should be sweet ones. Beyond that, there's no guidance in Scripture. And yet, beyond that, we tend to add a lot of things, don't we? There's not a church in the country that doesn't have battles over styles of music in worship, even though it is, uh, occupies uh, usually less than half of a worship service. It occupies uh, an extraordinary amount of time by those who lead churches, dealing with people who are arguing over their tastes and their prejudices. And uh, it's not just an American thing. I have have, uh, heard the woes from pastors all over the country. It's not just an evangelical thing. It's not just an ethnic thing. It is universal. Now, one of my professors in in a seminary used to explain that the, the, the reason why there are so many worship wars in churches, he said, when the devil was thrown out of heaven, he fell into the choir loft. There are lots of battles over worship and music. Fortunately, we're, we're uh, not encountering them uh, so much currently here, but maybe you are in your church. And I think is, uh, I, I do think 
while we laugh at that, that idea of uh, the devil falling into the choir loft, battles over worship have been since the creation. Cain killed Abel over a worship war. Abel offered a sacrifice from his heart to God, and God accepted it. Cain offered a sacrifice by which he was sort of, he was uh, looking for God's favor, sort of bragging before the Lord. He gave what he wanted to give, and the Lord rejected it. And Cain killed Abel. It's just a warning to you and to, the, and to me and to those we lead that when people begin to criticize a style of worship, a way someone is worshiping or is offering worship to the Lord, it's just a click away from the sin of Cain. You may be offering something, we say to our brother or sister, you may be offering something that, that, you, that, that turns your heart to the Lord. You are offering that to the Lord, but it's a, I don't like that beat. I don't like that style. I don't like how old fogeyish that is. Whatever, whatever criticism you place on that offering that is being made to the Lord is no different from Cain's resentment of Abel. It wasn't because Abel offered something that was a blood sacrifice and Cain offered a grain sacrifice. That had nothing to do with it. There were blood and, and uh, grain sacrifices throughout the rest of the Bible. It had entirely to do with the heart. Martin Luther said, Abel could have offered the shell of a nut, but if it had been given out of his heart, the Lord would have been pleased with it. So <clears throat> when you're in, I'm looking at various churches represented here, so when you're in a worship service, and there is a style of worship that, is, that uh, is capturing the hearts and imaginations of your brothers and sisters, and you just don't like it at all. It doesn't fit your style. Here's what you can do. You thank the Lord that your brother or sister is communing with the Lord. And you commune with the Lord uh, in reflection of that. My, my philosophy of, of leading worship for the last 30-plus years is we have a morning and evening worship. We encourage people to begin their Lord's Day and end their Lord's Day with worship. That's the biblical pattern, morning and evening worship. So I say over the course of the Lord's Day, we're going to craft things that, should, that at least one thing should really, really engage you, and you should love it, and at least one thing should just really offend you. And if that is true, we're probably hitting it just about right because that thing that offends you, offends your sensibilities, is really blessing somebody else. And whatever is blessing you is probably offending somebody else's sensibilities. So again, the Lord says, the Lord doesn't say, make a joyful noise if you feel like it and make joyful sounds if they fit your particular style and your prejudice, but rather express true worship to me, give a musical offering, and, and deliver it to me. Thirdly, it is to shout. Now, we're not, uh, uh, most in this room are not in a shouting culture unless you're in a football game, but um, 
What he means is, uh, is to make a vocal, to vocalize your enthusiasm. Vocalize your enthusiasm. Sometimes that is with your, with shouting. Sometimes it's with clapping. <clears throat> clapping is another in, in, uh, interesting phenomenon that I've encountered over the years. Some people wanting clapping uh, in worship and other people thinking it's uh, not appropriate. Although in the Psalms, uh, there's clapping all over the place. And clapping is an expression of enthusiasm. So <clears throat> we clap for children and we, we clap for certain kinds of music. You even clap for the lesson uh, at the end of this at the end of this time, no matter what kind of lesson it is, you know, even, even if it's a golf clap, you know, it's a clap. <clears throat> and we're, you're not doing it because you're <clears throat> trying to encourage celebrity status. We clap to express our enthusiasm or our support. And in whatever that way is conveyed, that should be encouraged. Historically, one of the most historically consistent ways we have we have shouted or expressed vocal enthusiasm is by the by amen or amen, the corporate amen. Uh, Tertullian said of the early church that the that the corporate amen that when there was a there was prayer, and and uh, they said and the introduction was in Jesus' name the amen was as great as a thunderclap. Well, when we vocalize our amen, we are uh, communicating that we are united and we are vocalizing our enthusiasm. And then uh, in verse 6, he says, uh, let everyone uh, worship and bow down and kneel. There are only two, uh, there are two primary postures of prayer in the Bible. One is standing and the other is kneeling. There's really no place in the Bible where we sit to pray. There's no lounging for prayer. There is prostration at times in prayer. But you're either standing in the presence of God or you're kneeling in humility. Now, uh, it's interesting that, and it doesn't mean that you can't pray while you're sitting. I'm just talking about the emphasis of Scripture. And I've studied the Psalms for, it's been an interest of mine to study in the Psalms and throughout the Bible, physical postures in worship. That is, what happens when the body is bent in support of worship? Or what happens, is it possible to change the soul by bending the body? So we have all of these, these physical expressions of worship described in the Bible. And they're, they're intended to do something to us to help us spiritually and emotionally connect more faithfully with God. It's not a way to, to pretend that you're something. It's not a way to get more favor from God. But uh, frequently throughout Scripture, we're called to raise our hands in prayer. Uh, we, we lift our hands in prayer. Now, occasionally, I just got a question the other day. I got a, uh, an email why do we lift our hands in prayer? Are we trying to imitate somebody, or, or uh, is there an agenda behind that? And they weren't trying to pick a fight. They just, but it's an easy question to answer. I, have a, I, have a, I answer it so often. 
throughout the years. It's an easy one because I just have all the Scripture verses that talk about lift your hands in prayer. And what does it do? When did we quit lifting our hands? When we thought we became men, right? When we were children, we easily lifted our hands. Help me. Dad, help me. And then gradually we go like this. And which is more biblical? To stand in the presence of God and saying, what have you done for me lately? Or I am, I'm just fine, thank you. Or Father, I need you. When we lift our hands, oh, they feel heavy, don't they? Oh, those arms are so heavy. Presbyterians have the heaviest arms in, in the creation. And we lift them up like this. Oh, Father, Father, I have to admit that I need you. And likewise with kneeling. It's really hard to bend your body to, to kneel, especially to kneel at second prayers on slate floor and really think, that you are something hidden. But to bend your body and to say, I am a sinner. Please, Lord, have mercy on me. I could give you many quotes here from Charles, uh, from John Calvin and others, but <clears throat> let me just give you this one from Spurgeon. Posture isn't everything, yet it is something. Prayer is heard when knees cannot bend, but it is seemly that an adoring heart should show its awe by prostrating the body and bending the knee. So we express our joy, our, our honor of God by singing, by making music, by bending our bodies, by expressing vocally our enthusiasm. And you know what happens to those around us watching us? especially our children, our grandchildren, those who are younger in the faith, they say, maybe I should do the same. And hasn't God bent his body? Hasn't Jesus knelt in order to reach us? Why should we not? And then these two other things in this passage, thanksgiving and obedience. Uh, we are thankful with our words because for two main reasons, we express thanksgiving and worship, because God is our great king and because God is our great shepherd. Verses 3 through 6, he is our great king. He is a great God, the king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. There are several things alluded to here that should provide us comfort and thankful hearts that God is the king. For one, he's king over the demons. Verse 3, he is the king above all gods. He is king over all the demonic powers. When we worship, when we worship with thanksgiving, it's an insult, it is an offense. It's galling to the devil. How can they thank you when they're suffering? The demons say, how can they be thankful when they don't know what's happening in the future? How can they express gratitude and even laugh and be joyful when death and destruction is occurring all around them? It's because we're confident in our great king. 
John Owen the Puritan said about our celebration of the Lord's Supper in particular, in our celebration of the death of Christ, we do profess against Satan that his power is broken, that he is conquered, tied to the chariot wheels of Christ who has disarmed him. When you don't feel like worshiping because of circumstances, that's exactly the right time to go to worship and to lead your family to do the same. I watched an incredible video uh, someone uh, on staff sent me. It was of a Ukrainian family uh, as, uh, the, as the Russians were starting to invade and they were getting close to their particular city. And um, they were singing uh, that Getty hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. He Will Hold You Fast. And uh, they were singing it in, in Ukrainian around a, 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 for family devotions. And the father was, was leading. He was smiling. He was leading. I'm sure he was terrified in his bone of bones. But then the, 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 the camera pans around the room, and there's a teenage boy. You can barely see his face in the shadow, and he's leaning, he's leaning up against a wall with his shoulder slumped like this with a, with a scowl on his face. I just, my heart broke for that kid. I, I, it's understandable how he would feel that way. You can imagine what he's thinking. How can we be singing at a time like this? How out of touch is my dad that he'd be leading us in a song when we're all going to die? But I'm sure he will never forget that moment. It could be transformative for him. We lead uh, in worship no matter how if we can see how things are going to happen or not, because he is a great king over the demons. He's a great king over creation, verses 4 and 5. He has all of the resources in his hand. He's a great king over us, verse 6. Nothing can separate us from the Lord who is our maker. And then he is a great shepherd, verse 7. He is our God. Whenever that terminology is used in, Bible, in the Bible, it's a reference to His covenantal relationship with us. Know that the Lord is our God. Or the covenant is expressed as, I will be your God and you shall be my people. When that terminology, our God, is used, it means He has committed Himself to us in His covenant never to lose us, no matter what happens. He is going to be our shepherd. We are going to be his people. This is, a, this is a, a tremendous reminder for us to be this kind of leader for, our, for those around us, for those who are behind us in the faith, for those who are our children and our grandchildren. A few years ago, I read a study called Families and Faith, published by a man named Vern Bingston who soon after he became a professor at the University of Southern California, USC, he started in 1969, he started studying 350 families. And in those families, there were people who were born between 1879 and 1989. He followed those families until 2008. And he was asking one question, how does the faith get passed down from one generation to the next? There were reasons that the faith didn't, did not get passed down. The primary reason was hypocrisy. Parents saying one thing in public and doing another thing in private. 
common denominator, common denominators included parents taking their children to church, going to worship. But the single greatest determinant for why a child, the next generation, follows in the faith of the previous generation was the father or the grandfather. Father or grandfather. And not just going to church, not just practicing their faith that showed a consistency between private and public, but specifically warmth and tenderness. He says, uh, fervent faith cannot compensate for a distant dad. He talks about his own father, his grandfather, and then his, who had ten children, all ten of his children followed in the faith, and then he was a third generation, and he wandered. When he got to graduate school, he wandered away from the faith. He came back at age 67. Because he remembered his grandfather. And he said, I had this great big jovial grandfather who expressed warmth, personal warmth in his love for us and in his devotion to his faith, his evangelical faith. All of his ten kids followed him in his faith. It was a pattern of parental warmth. Just because you're a grandfather doesn't mean you're... Your job is finished. Continue to show your children, your grandchildren, the love of God in your warmth, the way you express yourselves about others in the faith, about your church, and the way you express yourself in worship. Finally, and I'll conclude here, there's obedience, verses 7 through 11. How do we worship Him appropriately? It is to be obedient. Don't harden your hearts as at uh, Massa and Meribah, you know, when the people of Israel were complaining, complaining because they didn't get the water they wanted, complaining because they thought God had let them down. They complained later because they got tired of the bread. Why can't we have different bread? Why can't we have meat? Why can't we have meat like the others? Where are lentils? They were complaining. Don't complain, he says, because to complain... He expresses in verses 9 through 11, is effectively to tell God he made a mistake. Discontentment is our natural disposition. So complaining seems very normal, doesn't it? Because that's the way we're naturally wired. But it's impossible to complain and not accuse God of failing in some way. Well, what is the biggest reason that we worship? We began with it it's because of what Jesus has done for us. It's because Jesus was worshiping His Father that when His Father said, I want to save these people, He said, I delight to do your will. And so He, he bent His body even to the point of dying on the cross in order to show his love and appreciation for his Father, which resulted in our, in our redemption. And he returns to us again and again and again, singing in our midst. If Jesus 
by worshiping His Father, gave us our salvation. If Jesus can praise His Father in our worship services, putting up with, I mean, can you imagine the music He hears in heaven, and yet He sings with us? But He sings with us joyfully. The music He hears in heaven, and yet He loves the music we make. If Jesus worshiped the Father in the way He did, how much more must we worship and gather a great band of disciples with us? I saw this very powerfully demonstrated recently. I was, also, I was in Washington, D.C., for another reason, a few months ago, is an uh, installation of a friend of mine who was serving in a new pastorate. And I was standing on the front row with the, the, the commission that was going to install this man as a pastor. And next to me was a man named Admiral Red. He called everybody around him shipmate. Hello, shipmate. Not brother. Shipmate. He was, everybody was his shipmate. Graduate of the Naval Academy in 1966, active duty for 36 years. He was a fleet commander. In 2005, he became the first director of, national, of our National Counterterrorism Center. A man's man, wouldn't you agree? Seen a lot of danger, had a lot of difficulties, tough. Throughout that whole worship service, that man had tears coming down his eyes. We sang old, stalwart hymns, and we sang newer, sweeter songs on a guitar and with drums. No matter what we were singing, that man lifted his hand like this. He's a Presbyterian. I mean, he was a show enough Presbyterian. Tears coming down his eyes, hand up. Amen, he would say. Vocalize when someone praying, vocalize, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. After the service, everybody came up, hello, Admiral Red, hello, shipmate. Then his children, his grandchildren, all of whom were also worshiping just as engaged. makes a difference. You want to make an impact on the next generation? Whether you're married or not, whether you have family or not, no matter how young or how old you are, the difference will be made in the way you respond daily, and especially on the Lord's Day, in worship to the Savior who saved you as an act of worship to His Father. Let's pray together. Oh, our Father, we thank You that You loved us so much that You sent Your only begotten Son. And Lord Jesus, that in the context of worship, You responded to Your Father's call and came to save us. And Holy Spirit, that You are devoted to enabling us to worship and to convincing us constantly of Your goodness. And Lord Jesus, thank You for being in our midst and singing in our worship, that we join you every time we worship. 
We ask, O Lord, that this day, as people overhear our conversations, as they they look at the way we carry ourselves, as your Holy Spirit enables us to rejoice when we don't feel like rejoicing, and explain that we do so because you are our great King and you are our great Shepherd, that they too would follow a truly great Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.